0: Welcome to This is for the CV, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. This is a podcast by Anthony and Rebecca, two professors in communication and political science, chatting about politics, pop culture, and the things in between.
1: This week, we sit down with our first guest, Fernie Ceniceros. He shares his unconventional path through religion and education, and how he's found himself serving people at the El Paso Diocese during COVID, shootings, and serving refugees. This week, we have our first guest on. His name is Fernie Ceniceros. He's from El Paso, Texas, and he works for the Diocese of El Paso. He's an old friend of mine, but we think you'll like him too. We had this conversation with him a couple of weeks ago, and we think it works well to play it during a time of uprising and calls for justice. It shows a way faith and finding your thing can work to serve others. He shares about living through and serving people during the El Paso shooting, which was a racially motivated and targeted attack, his work with refugees, and the increased needs during COVID. So it's sort of what many might view as an unconventional way to serve movements and community, no matter the circumstance. We thought it a timely message as many of us are trying to find our way to sustain long-term change. That being said, Next week's episode will focus on the movement across the country. We'll process the killing of George Floyd, calls for police change, protests, looting, violence and anti-violence movements, media portrayals, and much more. Without further ado, Fernie Ceniceros. Today we have our very first guest on the podcast, Fernie Ceniceros. Claps.
2: I'm the first guest. I'm so thrilled.
0: And we're so thankful
2: to have you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. That's that's awesome.
1: We appreciate you listening. And then when you said you'd be willing to be a guest, we very much appreciated that. Fernie, you have lots of different stories to tell. But what we were particularly interested in having you on here for is to talk about your sort of unique journey with faith. And particularly mm-hmm. with the Catholic Church. Your early days. How you almost became a priest. Um yeah. how you did it and why and where you are now and what you're doing
2: so let me let me give you guys the the abbreviated version because i could sit here and talk all day about that long story short i was born and raised in el paso texas uh that's how rebecca and i met mm-hmm. rebecca lived here in el paso mm-hmm. uh graduated from one of our high schools yay rebecca hank oh high school yeah that's ago.
1: right you're hank too
2: no, I am actually not. I went to Bel Air, wow. but I worked for the district that you were a part of at one I'll point in it. my life. But anyway, I born and raised here, first generation Mexican American. Uh, my parents were, were immigrants. They migrated here shortly after having my brother. They actually had my brother here and then moved back and then moved to El Paso, I think somewhere in the mid 70s when moving to El Paso wasn't that big a deal. It, it wasn't quite as. Uh, extraordinary as it is now. you have to wait like 13 or 14 years because of the backlog or whatever. Uh, My parents applied for a legal residency. My dad worked for, actually, believe it or not, as um, he used to pick up garbage uh, on base. Uh, He was working for um, Fort Bliss. But anyway, uh, born and raised here, my parents are both Roman Catholic, married in the church. I was a churchgoer from the womb, basically. The legend my mother likes to tell is on the way home from bringing me home, because apparently I was a jaundice baby, which I just recently found out. Uh, they stopped at the church, and my mom gave me to, to God and said, you're lending him to me, but in reality, he's yours. And that's kind of how it starts. My first memories and experiences are all at the church. My dad, when he did finally find a more permanent job, my dad was the custodian uh, the parish that I grew up at, Santa Lucia, which is in the valley, it's a very, very poor community. In the '80s, it didn't even have paving, and it's in the middle of it's in the middle of El Paso. And because of the people that lived there, it didn't even have paved roads. You used to have a dirt road to get there. Now that's impossible to believe that that part of El Paso didn't have paved roads, but it did. And I, my whole childhood was at the church. My my all my firsts were at the church. One of the forming relationships that I made there was with my uh, confirmation godparent to my sponsor for my sacrament of confirmation. He was uh, studying to be a priest at the time. He was a seminarian, and his name was uh, Ralph. Well, he's Father Ralph now. Uh, and he kind of took me under his wing when my brother left for the Navy. Uh, we met around the same time, and he was very influential, you know, those real formative years, and, and always having had that thought of, I am thinking I want to be a Catholic priest. So, and of course, high school comes around and girls materialize, and <laughs> all of the things that happen when you're a kid happened. And of course, they happened to me, but I, in the back of my mind, I always had this thing, like to a point that I, I think even when, while I was dating, I used to tell like the girls that I was dating, like, you know, I want to be a priest. Well, that was like a point of like maybe self-sabotage, mm-hmm. if you will. That that was a way of like me keeping girls at a distance. Of course, th- being raised Mexican-American, my mom was the mom that when the girls called <laughs> to the house, my mom would like not let me talk to them. Like basically she would just say, Nosta, and boom, hang up on them. <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's yeah. what it was growing up. So Around the time I graduated high school, I didn't actually technically graduate. I actually was a few credits short and I was a couple of... Back in the day, we had the, the uh, toss mm-hmm. test, which mm-hmm. is a state mandated test and I didn't pass it. So I was about a credit and a half short. and. I guess because I was who I was and I was expected, there was more expectations of me. I was the editor of my high school paper. I was in broadcasting. I was a really involved kid. I just wasn't very academic. Long and short of it, I ended up dropping out. So I didn't know
1: that. Yeah,
2: I'm a high school dropout. i smarty. Yeah, I'm a high school dropout. Uh, around the time I was like, I want to say 21, it was kind of shit or get off the pot time. Mm-hmm. and i think what i did was and i'd done all kinds of odds and ends jobs from the time i finished high school till 21 like I, it was so funny hearing you guys talk about like your crop jobs uh <laughs> those four years boy i had the crop <laughs> jobs i don't have anthony beat on the brick uh stacking uh I, 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 I can't tell you how how hard I laughed when I heard you say I did it for four days. <laughs> That's all I had in me, man. It, I had to go. <laughs> but and when I was 19 years old, I needed I actually got in a car accident and I needed to pay back a ticket. And the way that I did it, a friend of mine through the church, because all my friends were through the church, a friend of mine said, I have a job you can come do full time. And it was like my first full time gig. I was like, Whoa, full time, big deal, right? Mm-hmm. What was an assembly plant for computer pins. All you did all day was assemble these pins. And it was a ball joint, a spring, and like a hoop and a pin. And you used to just assemble those all day. Just sit there and assemble all day. You had a workstation. You put your head down. You assembled. And you could put on headphones. And I think for me, that was like the best thing. But yeah, it was awful. I did that for 60 days. And once I was done, I was like, "Nope, that's it. I'm good. I'm out. I'll see you guys later." You know. But yeah, that those four years, I did a lot of work. I did video production stuff, uh, working for my, the school district that I and I graduated from. I did an internship at the high school that I graduated graduated uh, mm-hmm. finished school at or whatever. I did when I turned about twenty twenty one. It was like, "Am I gonna do this the rest of my life, or am I actually gonna do something?" And and this. Mm-hmm. priesthood seminary stuff was always there like you are going to join you gotta join come on you can do it like okay so I went I got my GED when I was done getting my GED I enlisted at the community college and realized schools I went to didn't teach me anything if anything they just taught me to get through and that was it and when I got to college man the first semester of college was rough because I had to relearn a whole bunch of things and I just wasn't prepared, you know, I didn't, I didn't know how to write a paper. I didn't have to write papers growing up. We didn't have to do that. Mostly my high school experience was, or my whole school experience was, he's this poor Mexicanito, just get him through, just get him through. Mm. And it's amazing thinking about my experience as a kid that I didn't graduate school was of my own volition really because it wasn't like it was hard i probably all i needed to do was just do the work and i didn't want to Mm -hmm. that was the only reason i didn't get out of school it had nothing to do with me and my ability but i think you, you buy into that stuff, especially yeah. going into going into college, and you, all of a sudden you're taking these college classes, and the professor's like, "Where did you go to school? You barely know english and but you're smarter than yeah, that what
0: professor
2: yeah mm-hmm. yeah Same. yeah and, and that, that was the other thing too, is the community college was little left to be desired here as well, but <laughs> that first semester, God, that first semester was hard, but Once I got past that first semester, I uh, did my application to the seminary and I I joined. So, how it works with the seminary here in El Paso is there's two levels of seminary there's a minor seminary and then there's a major. So, the minor is you're going to, you either are going to a secular school, which in our case we did, and you're getting a philosophy degree going to the secular school. And then uh, on the back end, you're living at a formation house where do all of the things that you would do if you were in a non-secular seminary. you get up for Mass, you know, meeting with your formators, talking about very specific theological things that you're not getting at the secular level. So I did that for two years. It was 20 years ago, actually. And those two years were really formative because, like, college was for me, as far as teaching me, like, you didn't get kind of formed right as far as academic is concerned. Also, in Catholicism, it was like, well, you didn't really get formed right in Catholicism either. There are some things that are part of your Mexican upbringing that are loosely tied to, to Catholicism. You know, uh, there was a lot of, like, things that mixed into Catholicism. I think one of the biggest ones was, if you tithe, you will get back your tithe tenfold, and that's not the way you tithe. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. not in any teaching at all uh, with within the Catholic Church. But it's
1: something that's passed down over time,
2: right? And it's also something that came from years and generations of non-education. Like, well, if we can get them to tithe, this is how we're going to get them to do it. it. There was a lot of like realis- realizing, "Whoa, I was a poor Mexican, and I did not have a chance to get out." Mm-hmm. So, whenever somebody talks to me and my wife and I have had these conversations about you're going to get yourself and pull yourself up from your own bootstraps. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily true. And I, I learned that the hard way because when I started getting into those formative years, good God, it was just so hard to just do the things that needed to be done just because I was written off. And then all of a sudden I'd look back at my experiences. I can think back to being like, In elementary school and the classes that I succeeded in, the last names were uh, like mine or similar to mine. Mm. I didn't succeed in third grade. Her last name was Janeski. I didn't succeed in fourth grade. Her last name was Ware. I did succeed in fifth grade. Her last name was Martinez. I Mm. did succeed in sixth grade. Her last name was Nunez. Second grade, I had an African-American teacher. I succeeded in those classes. Sure enough, middle school, same thing. Mathers for math failed. Tucker for, for science, failed. High school, Douglas for math, failed. And If it was somebody with that Mexican surname, it was different. It was a, just a different experience. Yeah. And I think started realizing all that stuff when I was here, when I was in the seminary. Because I'm going to the secular school, and then I'm coming back, and I'm getting formation. And even as progressive as El Paso is, there were still some things, especially in that part of the part, that time, that they just didn't happen. You know, they, they just weren't, weren't present here as much as they are now. Now, you know, we're teaching kids in Spanish. I wouldn't have been able to teach me in Spanish. No way, no way, no way on earth. And how challenging for your
1: family to help you because they speak Spanish.
2: Well, and to be very frank with you, you know, when we went to school for like the parent teacher conferences, I was the person that was telling my teacher, right. oh, I misbehaved on this day. This is what she said. And, you know, hope to God that you're not lying or figure out a way to say it in a nice, <laughs> nicey, nice way. That's how I got away with a lot of things. Like, I'd figure out a way to say what she was saying, but not so bad. Don't worry about it, mom. You're fine. But, total yeah. Spin. Yeah, yeah, total spin. But, yeah, that was what I grew up with. Like I said, it wasn't until like I got into my college career and after my college career that I started to really see, like, whoa, I was part of a conveyor belt. That's all school was here in El Paso at the time. It was just putting these Mexican kids, Mexican-American kids through these courses. So I did, I did seminary for two years, and I decided, you know what? I did realize, God, I've lived a very sheltered life. I was looking at a lot of my friends. A lot of my friends were out partying and being young and making stupid decisions, and I didn't do any of that. And... My feeling was, how am I going to minister to people when I've not lived any kind of life? I don't know if it was wise on my part to think that way, but I I felt like, man, I'm 24. The commitment that this requires of me is someone that would be married. It's the Mm -hmm. same kind of equation as someone that would be married. And if I'm going to get married to somebody, I need to know that I'm committed. And at the time, I just, things that were being asked of me, all of this stuff was new. You know, it was figuring out who I was. As a, as a Mexican-American first generation, even in El Paso. This was right after 9-11. Uh, 9-11 mm. happened my second year here. And hearing the rhetoric that would come out of, you know, the culture and things like that, I, I just felt like, man, I'm, I'm just not ready. I don't know what kind of an academic I'm going to be if I'm not even prepared. Like, I need to go out and do some things. I, I just need to leave. I'll be back in a year. And what was supposed to be, I'll be back to the seminary, or it ended up being 20 years before I walked in the door again here at the diocese. Yeah. I went out, started working for one of the school districts here, and slowly, slowly but surely started working my way up in video production and multimedia. And first year, was a, I was just wrapping cables, and then slowly they started giving me more and more and more and more. And getting certifications in software, getting certification in editing software, paying my dues, if you will. And in 2008, four years after I started working at, at the, the school district that I was in, the Isleta Independent School District, I was made a, an administrator finally making, you know, 50,000 a year, like, which was nice for a high school dropout. Yeah. And it was of my own making. I made it happen because definitely the culture in the society here was not going to allow me to do that. So I was there about nine years. Yeah. Nine or 10 years, close to 10 years. Then I moved to a neighboring school district and there was where I worked directly under the communication specialist, the, the chief, the chief communication specialist there. I learned like all about press releases. I learned all about like media and how to deal with media and even though I was hired as a video production person because I was part, I was really close to my boss as far as friends, you know, we go to lunch and we talk and Mm -hmm. I'd hear, Oh, this is his problem or this is his thing or the whatever. And during that time I got married during that time I had a baby. Uh, Those five, six years I was there, a lot changed in my life. And um, you know, for a little while there, I, for whatever reason, I just, didn't practice. There were things that were coming out of people that I knew from my past and saying certain things. As the culture and as the climate started to change here in the United States, I started to see certain friends speak a certain way. You know, I remember 08 and Barack Obama, me voting for Barack Obama as a Catholic, I would get a lot of crap from my from my Catholic counterparts of how are you gonna vote for this abortionist? You know, and that's not even that wasn't even his 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 deal, you know. And then some of the things that came out of that and immigration started kind of really, really happening or coming to the forefront. And, you know, the the situation in Juarez with all the death and all the murders and all those things. And for whatever reason I felt like, you know, I need to really take a step back from 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 my faith. I'm not, I really didn't practice. I even get, got to a point where I was just completely like, it's the. there's a situation there that's very cultish. And I'm wondering if it's a cult. If somebody were to stop me and ask me at that time, and I, I think you did even, Rebecca, I think you might have. Do you believe in the sacraments? Yes, I do. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. Do you believe in God? Yes, I do. Like all the major tenets of like the faith, I never really let them go. I just didn't practice them. And, and I just had a really bad taste in my mouth, especially around 2016, when I started to see that Catholics were becoming—some Catholics, not all Catholics, and I don't want to go into all that—but I started <laughs> to see that there was a culture within Catholicism where we're only going to vote because of this one issue. And everything else is trash. Everything else is, is absolute garbage. And Yes, uh, Mexican-Americans are being treated like crap. Yes, African-Americans are being treated like crap. So what? They're they're for abortion. They're for anti-abortion, so we're good, you know? And that was my thinking of, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a part of that. So really did let go of my faith for about three or four years. Mm -hmm. And around 2018, at the end of 18, I started to really realize, like, man, the hours I'm working are ridiculous. I was working 60, 70-hour weeks. I had a newborn, which I know, Anthony, you can account to uh, a newborn. When, 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 when they're born, mm. they need you all the time. and. And uh, I started looking around and going, you know, I'm not as home as much as I'd like to be. I need to find a job. We went to to dinner uh, the week after Thanksgiving. And I just looked at her like, I said, honey, I'm tired. And she's like, I know you're tired. I said, what do we do? Like, I can't keep living this way. Where I'm working these, mm-hmm. where I would work these like insane hours or weekends, right. you know, weekends, I'd work right. half days on weekends or full days on weekends because we found out last minute that somebody's having a thing that needs photos or video or whatever, you know. And I was at that point where I was also doing like things that were outside of my job. You are competent. So yes, you're getting exactly. on. So there were a lot of. 11 o'clock at night hours. So, I mean, and, and, and that's kind of the life that I was living. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't want to live this life. I want to be free of this. And my wife said, you know, let's find you a job. You can take a pay cut. I said, all right, I'll, I don't know when we're going to find this job. And lo and behold, about a week later, somebody came to me and said, there's a photographer position. It's at the Diocese of El Paso. And I remember thinking, where do you want me to go work? And why do you want me to go work there? <laughs> and it's like, but it'll be less hours. They go into work at nine. They have good benefits. I started to get really, really pushed me on. It. And I thought, well, okay, if it's less hours, I can come to terms with the rest of the stuff, the hangups I've got. I I guess the way that I saw it before I got here was whatever hangups I have, I'll put up with them because I'll get to see Annie, my daughter. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll get to be home more. So yeah, okay, fine. I'll I'll do it. And I came here and I was immediately welcomed in a way that I'd never been welcomed in another job. And yeah, they piled on me because that's what happens at all of my jobs is I get (laughs) piled on. But... In a different way, it just felt, lack of a better word, it felt like a homecoming. It felt like I came home all of a sudden. It was kind of nice. It was, mm. it, and all of a sudden, whatever hangups I had, kind of just went out the window. It, it was really strange. I don't know how else to say it. It was providential, you know. And I, I don't like talking like super religious fanatic type. Oh God, the hand of God was involved. I mean, yeah, sure, the hand of God was involved, but we have something to do with that too, you know. And my opinion is just, I think this is where I was meant to be, whatever your faith leanings are, whatever. But uh, over that period of time, in the, in the last year and a half since I've been here, I've made some really good friendships. I've made some friendships where I've been able to really suss out what it is that I believe and how I believe it and, and what it is that I don't believe and, and okay with it and, and not necessarily feel condemned by it. Actually, no one here has ever made me feel condemned by anything to do with anything you know it, it, it's just been it's been a good welcoming environment and up until the pandemic i was working uh normal hours you know and then and then yeah. corona happened and was a whole <laughs> it was a whole situation so now i'm working uh, i'm working clergy hours and the running joke is is that i left the seminary 20 years ago and yet here i am the only thing i don't have is a cleric and believe me if they could do it they could they would have get me today but um, yeah, it, it's kind of crazy. I'm working uh, Monday through Saturday in, at the Pastoral Center, which is our, our offices um, here at the diocese. I work directly under the bishop. I'm his communications person, so uh, all of the media, incoming and outgoing, goes through me. We, run a, a, we have a newspaper that we run here, and the other thing that I'm responsible for is providing the virtual services for our bishop to be able to be in in the community. So streaming, so I actually, uh, before all of this happened, again, Providence provided, I filled out a grant thinking, I need this equipment just in case something happens. And then just in case something happened and I had all the equipment ready to go, to be able to produce a mass that we can right. televise, um, to be able to do all of our services televised, but that does require me to be mm-hmm. here six days a week or take hours in weird times, you know, that's why on a Tuesday mm-hmm. afternoon, I can sit here and talk to you guys because no one's here on Tuesdays. So uh, that's right. a day that I can actually catch up on things. The, the pandemic has definitely, I, and I think like everywhere else, and I'm sure you guys can talk to this, is that the pandemic has definitely opened eyes about things that we didn't necessarily think about or kind of just like put it in the back burner, like we'll deal with this eventually and then the pandemic came and it's like oh we can't deal with this eventually we
1: have to I can't avoid our problems anymore
2: <laughs> exactly but that that's more or less my story in 15 minutes sorry i took 15 minutes
1: no 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 no, no. you that's what we've asked you to do you're fine I remember talking to you late, I think, it was like after midnight, and we spoke over the phone after the shooting in El Paso happened, because I had been in contact with you to make sure you were okay, because I know you live really close to that Walmart, and throughout the that day and the coming weeks, you had just really, I think, profound insights in terms of The way you reconciled what you are actually doing for the church and the way that the church can provide this sort of pastoral care to the community. So I was wondering if you'd share a little bit about
2: that. One of the things that, uh, that I was tasked with when I first got here was, and just to give you a little bit of back information before I get into the shooting, because the shooting... If I don't explain this, the shooting doesn't take the same kind of relevance, but Mm -hmm. there were a couple of things that Mm -hmm. happened as I got here. One of the things was the diocese of El Paso was a migrant shelter for immigrants that were coming over from Central America, Central and South America, places like Guatemala, Honduras, Costa Rica, those places. And these people were either environmental refugees or refugees from political asylum or from political chaos uh, and anarchy, literal anarchy, or what have you. These people were coming from really, really, really bad situations and there's poor and then there's what they were. And they were just the poorest of the poorest of the poor. But one of the things that Bishopside said. Immediately after, around the time of the midterms and after the midterms, one of the policies that uh, CBP started doing was they would gather, they would collect a group of migrants at the detention centers here, and then after they had ran out of capacity, say we don't have capacity for them, we just let them on the streets. And we just leave them mm-hmm. on the streets, literally on the streets. And uh, one of the co- commitments that Bishop Sites made to the local Border alliance here, was he said, okay, a commitment that I can make as a church is there will be no people left on the street. So we opened up our own uh, asylum house here. These were people that were already cleared through the asylum process. They were dropped off here in a bus by ICE. And we were taking, I think, at the height of our opening, and we were open from October of 18 through June of 19. We were taking between 60 and 80, and at the height, it was like 100 and 150. And these people were in and out of here. These people would come. They would stay here. We would give them three square meals a day. We would give them an opportunity for a shower because they didn't have it. We were giving them their dignity to some extent. And they'd come in, they'd identify where they were going. A lot of times they weren't staying here in El Paso. They were going to Houston, Dallas, Galveston, uh, New Orleans, Florida, Chicago. I mean, they had jobs lined up and ready for them to go. And, you know, they'd come and we'd help them get to wherever they get there. They, they were in and out in 24 hours, 24 to 48 hours max. So I think we saw all together somewhere upwards of... I think we did the average once, and I think it was all together, we saw close to 10,000 migrants, close to, close to 10,000 migrants. And the rhetoric at the time was we were taking on illegals, and, and that, that, those are the conversations I was having really early on. And I think that's what made it easy for me to kind of meld into the church, because it was, it was, uh, it was doing the work that I already wanted to do and couldn't, working for a school district. I was, I was uh, in the forefront of an immigration issue all of a sudden. And come June, Trump enacted his migrant protection protocol. And once that happened, we shut down because we didn't have, we didn't have the refugees here. You know, we just, they weren't coming. They were being left in Mexico. I was, and
1: I was just going to ask you referring to the stay in Mexico, Mexico policy. policy. Remain
2: in Mexico, but it's called the migrant protection protocol. But it's it, in a sense, it's, it's remain in Mexico. And this is, this is Stephen Miller at his finest, uh, really. Um, uh, but anyway. We could do a whole episode on that, oh. man. And I haven't heard of him. He- He's a
0: special human, that's for sure. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, 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 So anyway, once uh, MPP came into place, uh, which is the Remain in Mexico. Uh, we were left to—we couldn't migrate, we couldn't uh, take care of these migrants anymore, and we wanted to be involved. As a matter of fact, it's, it's our mission to be involved, as Christians and as Catholics especially. And one of the things that we brought attention to was on June 27th of last year, Bishop Seitz crossed over into Mexico. We had arranged for a family that was really in dire straits that had been part of the Remain in Mexico um, process. We arranged to cross them over illegally, and we had a uh, showdown with CBP at the border. Anyway, long story short, we ended up crossing over. They did have to go back, and then they came back, but we did get them over. But I mean, it was just a way to bring attention. And this was in June, so all of a sudden, there were a couple things that happened here. And I don't, the, the, the two or the three instances that I'm going to talk about, we don't know if they had anything to do with what was happening on the border or had anything to do with the border issues. But it seems kind of odd that it was happening at around the same time. But there was a couple of things that mm-hmm. happened. We were, we had been uh, victims of, of attempted arson and actual arson to three of our churches. In May, June, and July. In May, there was one church that was vandalized, which our cathedral, uh, with a Molotov cocktail. They tried to throw it, chuck it through a window, and it didn't. It bounced off and it bounced back. And anyway, um, and then another one of our churches at the end of May, the beginning of June, about a year ago, same thing. Tried to chuck it through a window and it bounced back, or something. Another happened. Then two weeks after that, there was a church on the west side of town in the poor part of the west side that actually caught fire. They figured it out after a couple of attempts and broke a window, chucked a a bottle in with, uh, you know, kerosene or whatever, and it lit up one of our churches. So that happened. Then we crossed people over. So my phone calls were about that, really. And then then August 3rd happened. And uh, when August 3rd happened... I live, I live, just for a point of reference, uh, Rebecca knows, but Anthony doesn't. I live literally two minutes away from that uh, Walmart. I think, Rebecca, we sent you for, for, um, for my wedding. We sent you for like... Yeah, sodas and stuff. Yeah, There were <laughs> things that you had to do for that Walmart. Um, but uh, th- just to get an idea, it's not even five minutes away. And that particular morning, my, my plan was, I'm gonna go work out. After, after I'm done, I'm gonna go to the groceries for my family so Chrissy can stay home. And it was a way, I'm not gonna lie, it was an excuse for me to get out of the house. And, and I did. I left at, I think, at 9.30 in the morning. I went to, to the gym, which is right down the street. I took my time. My God, did I take my time. I poked so hard. I mean, I think I, I, I started watching episodes of Entourage while I was working out. And as I finished working out, I still kept watching. I went and found a place to sit down and started watching. I said, all right, let me go take a shower. And I went and I took a shower. I came out of the shower, got in my car, started listening to a podcast. I didn't move my car until almost 11. It was like 1050. And I remember I turn on the car, start making my way to the, to the Walmart, which is right down the street from the gym. And all of a sudden, I see, I see cars going fast. Like, what is happening? And I get to where the, the intersection where you turn into the Walmart, and I see an empty car, police officers motioning me to come through, and a car run off the road. And I thought, okay, this is my crime scene. I've been to plenty of them. I'm just going to go around. Uh, I go around towards the other side. That complex, that Walmart complex is a Walmart Sam's where they're together because they're the same company. Well, I got to the Sam's parking lot and I tried to go around through the back, you know, just to avoid traffic. And all of a sudden people start telling me, turn around, turn around. I'm like, what is happening right now? And all of a sudden my mind is going, something, something's happened. I don't know what this is. Maybe it's a drill. I've been to drills. I've been, I've been a part of drills put on drills for the school district. So I thought, this is a drill. So I get out, I ask, I actually stopped my car, got out and asked an employee, what's going on? She was like, oh, there was a crazy guy with a gun. And I was like, oh gosh, okay. Let me see if I can go around the other way and maybe I can park somewhere and just wait it out. And then I'll go Mm. to the store. So uh, I start making my way around towards the front of the parking lot. And that's where I met with two police officers with assault rifles, (laughs) waving me off. And that's where I'm like, holy Lord, I'm, something happened here. This is not, this is is something huge happened here. I literally turned around. I had to wait for them to clear me. So when I got, I made a U-turn, they got in front of me, like protecting me, barricading me, and then they, 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 uh, converged, they separated together in front of my, in front of my car. And then they said, okay, go through. And then I went through And bit out of there, like a bat out of hell. And I got to mm-hmm. my house. I, when I got into the house, I started to really realize this is something really, really, really big because I had seen the, the buses that were dropping people off and people were crying and I started seeing things and I'm like, oh no, this is you know, this isn't good. And the five minutes it took me to get from the parking lot to my house. And the school the- that
1: you can basically see from your house was the relocation. And
2: that that hadn't happened yet. So I get inside the house. I give, Annie is the first person that sees me. She comes and runs and gives me a hug. I give her the biggest hug in the world. I look at Chrissy and I Mm. go, this is serious. I'm going to have to work now. And she's like, okay, yeah, whatever, fine. Run to my office. I shut the door, turn on the computer, and that's when I start seeing. And then all of a sudden, my phone is going. And then the reunification center is right next door. And it's like, oh, my God, what is happening? And then within, I'd say, about half an hour, we started getting word 18 people are dead. And to a point where the fog of war, you don't realize, like, how much uh, is real and not real. I mean, because we were also hearing things of, well, Mm -hmm. they're at another Walmart and they're at this Walmart and stay inside, don't go out, they have three people in custody, and all of a sudden, they started thinking, I think I saw the shooter being arrested, and I remember telling, I I forget who I told, somebody I was talking to, I said, I think I saw the the shooter be arrested on Sunmount, right, and it's like, yeah, on Sunmount, yeah, I think I saw the shooter being arrested, and, um, you know, writing statements on the phone, we're in prayer for everybody, first responders, da-da-da, Phone with Bishop, Bishop, this is what's happening, just so you know, da da da. Phone with my chancellor, we need to write this, we need to do that, let's get together. And then I'd say within the hour, hour and a half, we found out it was 20 people, you know. Mm-hmm. And Bishop Seitz mm-hmm. was at, the, at uh, uh, UMC, our, our medical center here in El Paso, the University Medical Center for Texas Tech. Uh, he was there when the mother of the young baby, he was there when she died. Uh, she she was alive up until the minute, and then she ended up passing away. And uh, I heard I started hearing all the stories, and then all of a sudden, well, we're making the reunification center. It's right across the street, and it was literally walking distance from my house. I I can see it, and Rebecca's been there; she can see it. And just people everywhere and crying, and you can't be in your house, you know. And you just want to go out and help them, but you want to stay out of the way of people and and also, I had a job to do too. And I was already getting phone calls of, "Do you have a priest on the floor? Where, where is Bishop Seitz? Who can we speak to him? Can I mean, just the list of things." And then, you know, one of the first calls I got, I think within the hour too, was, "We have a manifesto. Do you have comment?"
0: Oh, awesome! Cool. Uh,
2: because of the uh, uh, because of the nature of of what his manifesto was. Mm-hmm. So, like
0: when you when you saw it when it, when it comes to your computer, your phone. And you're just reading through that. What are you thinking, given your place and standing in the community, given your history? What are you thinking reading that?
2: Anthony, I'll tell you, uh, it it was not a surprise. Wow. But I did not have an opportunity to really process it. It Mm -hmm. was more along the lines of, at at first it it was along the lines of, well, is this confirmed or not? Well, we don't know yet. So then you just kind of mentally go okay not a thing yeah people need help and Mm -hmm. i think that's kind of what happened with me particularly i had a couple times where i was able to really process what had happened before or on august 3rd but for the most part it was just it was like filing you just don't think about what's happening you're just kind of going phone Mm -hmm. call another phone call and another phone call another phone call and it was like that the whole day i mean i was on the phone from 20 minutes after the shooting till 11 o'clock at night. And that was around the time I think I talked to you, Rebecca. That <laughs> was like the first time I was able to sit and go to process it. But I, yeah, it, does, it made me a little angry thinking, oh, this dumbass, you know, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean to sound so crass, but, you know, God bless. And, and I do remember telling Chrissy when I got home He's like, who do you think could have done this? And I said, we're going to find out about somebody that's just angry at all the things that we're doing. Just a hunch. I didn't know anything. I didn't know about the shooter. All I knew was I saw a white person being put into a squad car. That's all I knew. And that's the only reason I said that was because I saw this person I was putting two and two together. Then the manifesto comes out. And then it comes out that it's confirmed. That's when you do some thinking. But I I honestly, honestly with the exception of the one or two conversations I had with close friends that I, that I really, really care about, I didn't get a chance to really process it for weeks, weeks. And I am telling you, it was weeks. And, I, and I'll get into that. But so that was Saturday. Sunday, it was all about us organizing this big prayer vigil where everyone came together and we had something to say. And of course, you know, there are things that are happening at the time. Like I remember I can't go to sleep. There's people outside waiting for, to hear whether or not their loved one has died. Uh, and you could hear them crying. You can, you can hear them cause they're, they're, they're parked right in front of your house, Th- those things were real. And just like the sense of, of being lifted off the ground and just watching everything and not being able mm. to react the way that you'd like. I was not a part of the El Paso community at the time, even though I was. And yes, there was some anger, but no, there wasn't because I didn't have time for that. And so uh, Sunday came, we had this big vigil, and then Monday I was here. And Monday was extraordinary. I got my first text message from CNN at 5.45 in the morning. And then all of a sudden it was just constant, NBC, MSNBC, CBS. They want to talk to a priest. They want to talk to the bishop. They want to talk to this. We want to hear about the bishop that spoke so well yesterday. I met Chris Cuomo and had a chance to school him on what it was to be a Catholic. (laughs) Univision was here. Radio Japan was here. I mean, it was, we were inundated. Like my call sheet was five, six, seven pages long, just call this person back and it, and it was it was so crazy that monday morning i'll never forget it because you would get the message you would write it down you would call this person back and they've moved on if you don't call them within 5 minutes they're gone they're on to the next guy mm-hmm. or if you get them like they're trying to commit just to you they don't want you talking to anybody else we want to get the scoop we want the bishop you know like cnn was cnn was very 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 exclusive about we want Bishop sites. We don't want anyone to go on live with him before we do, you know. Um, I remember that Thursday after the shooting, I couldn't sleep, and and part of it was I hadn't processed. Like I said, I hadn't processed processed it all. I got up at five in the morning and I went to the vigil site, which was north of that Walmart, that El Paso, because El Paso is El Paso. Just a long, like I'd say about. A hundred yards of, of candles right outside that um, the Walmart, and there's a, there's a hooters that's there, so it's outside the hooters, actually, <laughs> of all places, but uh, candles, and people would come visit because they couldn't get any closer to that. And of course, you hear the stories and how people died and what it was exactly that he was after. Like, people needed a place to heal. I just wasn't one of those people. I couldn't. I did, didn't have time. I just didn't. But that Thursday, mm-hmm. I did go to, to the site. I did pray for those people because I couldn't sleep. They took some pictures because I needed pictures for my periodical. And I remember I was just kind of standing there praying and doing what I could to just kind of take it because I hadn't processed it. Like I remember telling Chris, he's like, I haven't cried at all about this. Nothing about this is making me angry or sad or frustrated. I've just been in this really weird place. I, I, I can't even explain it now. And I remember good morning america walked up to me because the local reporter said he's their communications person for and i'm in shorts and a t-shirt and a hat you know i'm just there for me and asking me hey do you want to talk to us for good morning america i'm like no i i no i i really would like to be asleep right now but i'm not and (laughs) here and i'm obviously praying i had a rosary in my hand i'm praying you know like let me be, and I had to. I had to decline it. Say no. Normally, I would say, "Yeah, sure, I'll talk to you, whatever," but for this, I had to say, "No, I'm sorry. I'm just not in an. I mean, look at me. I'm I'm in a Yankees cap. You know. Come on, give me give me some space." But that was the kind of thing that was happening back then. Was people wanted to hear from us and talk to us, and it was for three weeks. Three weeks before I was even able to figure out how angry I was about it or how upset I was about it. And then, and, and of course, the other thought that, that kept racing through my mind was I could have very easily been inside. Oh, yeah. Give or yeah. take 15 minutes. I would have been inside. And what would I have done? I, I mean, just there was a lot of processing that needed to happen that I didn't have time for. And it wasn't until I think after Memorial, after uh, Labor Day that I finally went to see a counselor. Because I had to talk about it. And finally, I cried. But it took me, uh, it took me a couple of days. And then, it t- and then there was a lot of thinking of, what if the work that we've been doing brought this kid here to do that? You know, you think a lot of things. You think all the crazy things. All the crazy. You think about it. But August 3rd was like an extraordinary situation.
1: How did it feel to go from... The entire country paying attention and wanting interviews to then just
2: picking up and leaving and we all moved on. You know, on. what's funny is that there was a level of it was interesting because that Monday we went to the to the farm, the, the satellite farm, because they always set up a satellite farm. And yeah, it was interesting that they were here for a whole week. And I remember thinking there was a couple things that I thought. But one of the things that that I definitely thought was, OK, national media will be here till Tuesday. Their news cycle will end on Tuesday. They'll be in and out of here. But then Dayton happened. Aww. And when Dayton happened, all of a sudden the rules were out the door. All of a sudden it was a week and a half long thing. So for me, you know, there wasn't a level of, oh, you're here and now you're gone. You got your story and now you're gone. It was more like, God, thank you for being gone because I just <laughs> can't take another, another inappropriate request because they don't know how it works or what happens. But August 3rd, has touched our lives even up till two weeks ago. We just lost our last uh, victim to August 3rd. Uh, there was a gentleman that had been fighting for his life for six six to nine months. And he finally succumbed to, to his injuries. And he had something like 27 surgeries. It was wow. crazy. And, you know, now we have 23 You know, it was 23 victims and um, four of, I think it was 49 people. And once you really, and I'm telling you, it wasn't until October for me that I started to really like, mm, it started to really get to me. Like, I cannot believe this happened in my community. But the one thing I will tell you is that we did know immediately, oh, it couldn't have been someone from here, from El Paso. It was going to be someone from somewhere else. And sure enough, that's what ended up happening. And I think what, what you tend to think about is, how is it possible that we live in this society that has this rhetoric of, I was in line first, so I deserve the attention that I need to get. And that, that's really quintessentially what the problem is, right? It's, it's people that feel it necessary to be at the very front of the line, or they were in line already for whatever reason, and then all of a sudden, people with my skin color come and take your place, and now I got to shoot up a Walmart, because there's an invasion, or whatever, what have you. It, It was hard to hear, and it was hard to process, and it was hard to stop and think, well, there's divine providence in all of this, too. Where is the divine work? What are we called to do? And I think one of the things that one of my counselors told me was, you weren't meant to be there because you were meant to help send the message of hope and faith and help people heal. That was kind of like a, what do I, what did I do to deserve that? I, we always talk about that, Chrissy and I. What did I do to merit that? Why am I so uh, important that I don't get affected by these things? There was a situation that happened just recently, actually, as, as, as part of the pandemic. I had the opportunity to visit with Bishop Sites, the local uh, food bank here. And we got to talk to the CEO of the food bank, El Pasoans Fighting Hunger here in El Paso. And one of the things that the CEO kind of slapped us with, like she was carrying a cold bucket of water and was ready to throw it to us. Mm-hmm. And one of the cold buckets of water that we got that day was they were feeding. And it was part of that line just to get there. It was a mile and a half that zigzagged through a neighborhood that it was in. People in line for food because they couldn't get food anywhere else. They're out of a job. They're out of whatever, what have you, right? And she said that 13 percent of El Paso lives 100 percent below the poverty rating. And eight percent of that lived 200 percent below the poverty rating. And that was a big slap in the face. That was like, "Wow, That's here. That's in the United States. That's in America. That's in El Paso. You know, We pride ourselves for being so progressive, but in reality, it was incredible to even see that that was the case. And sure enough, she says, that was, before, that was before COVID. Now that COVID is here, and now that COVID has taken root in this community, she was feeding half of El Paso. Half of El Paso was either in some kind of unemployed situation or somebody in the household was unemployed and somebody was living below the poverty line. And that, to me, because I didn't struggle as a... As a as a communications person, I was one of the few people that was not furloughed. I was one of the few people that was, that was still had a job and had a full time job at that. Actually, my, my job got harder as a result of COVID. But um, it, it was pretty disheartening to hear that. And, you know, August 3rd was kind of the beginning of really, really showing this community that was so sheltered what being part of this country really means and being part of a country where there's, a rhetoric that's being told over and over again for the benefit of whoever corporations or Donald Trump or Stephen Miller whoever you know I don't want to give any names
0: well you know rebecca talks often about what it means to be empathetic and trying to build that into her courses and whatnot and you know this pandemic and what you're describing this this is going to hit people All over the place, whether they're financially impacted or not, you're still on some level alone with your own thoughts and you you, you have to be introspective in a way and empathetic in a way. It's like, yeah, there's people at the food bank that never thought in a million years they'd be at the food bank. So when they're not at the food bank in a year from now, they'll still remember, oh, wait, the food bank matters because the food bank fed my family for three months. We should fund the food bank. You know, whereas before it's like, oh, those people are cutting in line; they're getting free stuff subsidized off my hard work. And it's like, no, these 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 things are here for a good reason, because all of us are five bad decisions away from being homeless. I don't care what the number is in your savings All of us are five, ba- or 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 one catastrophic unknown event away from calamity that we have no control over. And we start talking about providential thinking and, and 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 how the Lord moves and works. It's like, eh. Everybody, I, I, I shut you down with dust. I shut you down with something in the sky you can't even see mm-hmm. to get you to think more about each other. And so, you know.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. oh that baby's the awake. The baby hears me. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. That's okay. That's okay. I know you have. On that note, Fernie, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story and then especially for going there in terms of the awesome work you did with, working with refugees and how that's kind of connected to everything yeah, in the community. I, I mentioned that we like to close out with a quote. Do you have I a quote do. for it's us? It's kind of
2: long. That's and it okay. fits into what we we're talking about. So let us not be blind to our differences, but let us also direct attention to our common interests and to the means by which those differences can be resolved. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal. And that was from President Kennedy's, uh, that was President Kennedy, his America University speech.
1: Gotta love it. This has been This is for the CV. Thanks for listening, Mom.
0: The music composed for this podcast is performed by Issa Black. Thanks, man.